Chapter Nine of Tim by Howard Sturgis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Larry Kaplan. You might come up tomorrow afternoon if you cared, Carol had said as they parted, and then we could go round by the old mill as I meant to do today, and you would see the new cart road Grandfather is making in the wood. And who's so ready as Tim? Only he doubted if his father would get back in time for him to get to the court after he had been to Grandhurst to fetch him. Would Carol leave it open? And Carol had said, All right, old fellow, I shan't expect you till I see you, on which understanding they had parted. Tim, standing to watch the tall, active figure striding away from the open door of the manor house, calling his dogs after him. He's a fine grown lad, that young Darley, remarked Mrs. Quitchett, who had come out to welcome her nursling. Do you remember the day, Master Tim, dear, when he came with the grapes, the first time ever he come here? Remember? Oh, nurse! cried Tim. He always called the old lady nurse. He's the noblest, finest fellow going, and I love him better than anybody in the world, except you, dear. He added quickly, putting his arms about her as he saw a quick look of pain cross her face. And then, what was it? A prick of conscience, perhaps, that made him add lower and more thoughtfully, with just a shade of doubt in his tone. And father. Was it true that he loved his father better than Carol? The question had never before suggested itself to him in that crude form. What was the criterion of loving? He did not know. He had no signs to go by. He had assumed, as children do, that of course he loved his father. Good people always love their parents. It was only that vague, indefinite class of the wicked, which he heard denounced on Sunday, and to which it never occurs to a child that he, or any of his immediate surroundings, can possibly belong, who did not love their parents. But now he felt in his inmost being that his affection for his father was not as strong as that for his friend, was not indeed of the same sort at all, and he took shame to himself for the discovery. Many of us live thus for years, allowing our hearts to act for us, and never asking ourselves needless psychological questions. And then suddenly comes a time when we seem to start up uncomfortably active and alert. New possibilities open out around us, and questionings of our feelings suggest themselves which plead importunate for answers. Nor can we make a greater mistake than in supposing that such turns in their lives come only to men and women. To a boy of Tim's organization, Fourteen is an age quite ripe for crises. Violet crosses his path, erect, slim, and hazel-eyed, and in a moment he seems to understand all possible complications of love and courtship between her and Carol. He makes a chance little gush to his old nurse, and lo, conscience awaking, proceeds to inquire with uncomfortable pertinacity into his relations with his father. When one considers how those who have delicate consciences like our hero, suffer and writhe and run round and round and drive their stings into their own brain. One is tempted to ask as the best gift for one's dearest a fine, tough insensibility, a happy bluntness of the moral sense. I suppose the moralists would tell us to keep our account with the stern goddess as clean as possible, to put into her hands no weapon for our torment. But which of us can truly boast of such a course as that? And besides, does not experience daily teach us that it is precisely the most blameless among us she selects for her favorite victims? Tim, as he sat over the book he did not read that night, 
as he drove over to Granhurst in the trap next day, could not help asking himself, "'What have I ever done for father, who has done so much for me? What have I ever given up for him?' He tried to answer that no boys of his age can do anything for their parents. It is a matter of course that they accept what they get. "'Ah, uh, but,' says Conscience, "'they love their fathers.' And though he dared not put it into words, even to himself, the thought was ever present, though formless as yet within him, that he did not love his father. Poor Mr. Ebbesley! No one did love him that I know of. No one ever had. He was not made to attract love, and yet, if his heart was not breaking for it, not being of a breaking sort, it had hardened and withered and dried up for want of it. To have longed for love all one's life, to have sought it with care and constantly missed it, is as sad a fate as can well be imposed on a man, and is not calculated to sweeten the temper. Looking back over William Ebbesley's life, the wonder is that he had not turned out a social pariah and enemy of his race. There must have been an immense moral rectitude about him that kept him true to what he believed to be his duty to his neighbor. Early left an orphan by poor and improvident parents, he had been educated by the grudging charity of people with a family to provide for, and sent abroad in an age when many boys have not left school to push his own fortunes. Uncheered, uncared for, he had fought his way through twenty hard years, if not to riches, to what thirty years ago was considered a very decent competence, and had returned to England to fall a prey to one of those absorbing passions for a beautiful and penniless girl many years younger than himself, which are so often the fate of men verging on middle age, in whose earlier youth there has been no room for romance. On her he had lavished all the wealth of love that had for years accumulated in his lonely heart. I would dwell as lightly as possible on the painful and bitter episode of his short married life. Of the way it ended, I have already given a hint in an earlier chapter of this story. Just where he had placed all his hopes of happiness, the bitterest shame and sorrow of his life had lain in wait for him. Many men would have been utterly crushed by such an end of all that they had longed and worked for, and laid down their arms in the unequal struggle with fate. But Ebbesley, half ruined by the extravagance of the woman he had loved, wounded to the heart by her cruelty, and humiliated in every fibre of his proud nature by her unfaithfulness, had yet one link that bound him to the world, one thing left to work for. It was such a fragile thread, the poor little year-old baby, by which to hang on to affection and grace and the beauty of life. But it was his all, and he grasped it despairingly. For the baby's sake he had gone uncomplainingly back to years more of the banishment he had thought ended, and the labor he believed accomplished, even separating himself from the child for the child's good. We have seen how he dwelt in secret on what his son was to look like and be like, how often in his own mind he had foreseen the manner of their meeting, and how, when the time was come, he had chafed at every delay, counting trains and steamboats, but crawling snails, compared to the wings of love that were bearing him back to his little one. And we have seen, too, what awaited him at home. If I had wearied my reader with insisting on the barrenness of this man's life, it is because I am full of pity for him and would not have him judged too hardly if, in what follows, he seems unkind to his son. Tim arrived at Grandhurst in a chastened frame of mind, and endeavored to blot himself out of the gaze of the few unemployed people always waiting about a station, 
who seized on him as lawful prey and stared as though with a view to his identification on the morrow before a jury of their fellow citizens. From this scrutiny, which was peculiarly trying and distasteful to him, he was shortly delivered by the arrival of a hot dog who was brought in resisting violently and tied to a post, and upon whom all the interest of the unoccupied population, for a moment directed at him, fastened itself with avidity, leaving Tim once more to his compunctions. The first outcome of his meditations was an unusual infusion of tenderness and spontaneity in the greeting kiss he bestowed upon his father, when, in due course, the train brought up beside the platform and Mr. Ebbersley descended, bending his cindery whisker towards the fresh young lips. As they were mounting into their conveyance, and the aggressive whiteness of the W.E., which from the side of his black bag thrust its owner's personality on a reluctant public, was being eclipsed under the seat, a new anxiety suggested itself to Tim, which his previous train of thought had for the time kept under. Mindful of Carol's invitation, he consulted his watch, and found that his power to avail himself of it would depend upon whether Mr. Ebbesley had any business in Granthurst, or meant to return at once to Stoke Ashton. Timidly, but with a manner of studied unconcern, he asked the question, and, to his delight, his father answered that he was going straight home. It seemed as though his mind in its rebound, as this weight was lifted off it, scattered the doubts and fears that had oppressed it all the morning, and he felt light of heart and inclined to chatter as the carriage rolled on its way over breezy commons or plunged into deep shady lanes. In the days when Tim was a schoolboy, August was still a hot month, and the warm sun called an unusual glow into his cheek at the edge of the shadow cast by his straw hat with its pretty ribbon. Eaton has certainly improved him, thought Mr. Ebbesley, looking at him half critically. He has lost his whip-dog expression. And he smiled approvingly at his son, saying with frosty geniality, uh, You must tell me all about last half. How have you been doing at school? Oh, it has been a very jolly half, and I have hardly stayed out at all, although it was so hot. I wrote you that I took 13th in trials. Tommy Weston said it was an unlucky number, but I told him he would not have thought so if he had been there in the list instead of 25th. And uh, who was Tommy Weston? asked Mr. Ebbesley, feeling quite friendly towards this other man's son, who had done less well than his own. Tommy isn't his real name, you know, explained Tim. He's a fellow at Matutor's, and the other fellows call him Tommy. He's been very jolly to me, and indeed, I get on better with all the fellows than I did at first. And I've passed, which means, don't you know, that I can swim and may go on the river, and I think... Rather doubtfully. I'm beginning to like cricket a little. That's a good thing, said his father judicially. It is always well in life to like what other people like. Eccentricity always brings unhappiness. Tim glowed and expanded with the pleasant sense of having done the right thing. It was such a new and strange sensation. And I've grown, he said exultingly. I'm two inches taller than I was in the spring. Capital, said Mr. Ebbesley, almost with enthusiasm. And he thought, it is not always the boys who grow young who turn out the finest men in the end. And your tutor, he asked, I hope he is satisfied with you. Oh, my tutor's been awfully good to me. He always is. He took me to Burnham Beaches the other day, and we had a delightful afternoon, and he's promised to give me a good report. I was fifth in collections, 
and if I had been third, I should have got a prize. So Tudor said he would give me a little book anyway, and he wrote to console in it, because he said it was hard luck on me being just out of it, and I had worked very well all the half. Wasn't it kind of him? In his heart, Mr. Ebbersley thought it was a foolish indulgence, but he was feeling so amiably towards his son just then that he let it pass without comment. Indeed, he seemed altogether in so gracious a mood as he sat listening with a grave smile to all that he was told, though he did not say much, that Tim was presently encouraged, rambling from one subject to another, to speak of Carol. He had never felt so near to his father before, so able to talk freely to him of what was in his heart. Ordinarily, he did not say much about his friend. His father never seemed to be pleased at his affection for him. To tell the truth, the poor man had not forgiven Carol the awkwardness of their first meeting, and the innocent part he had borne in the disappointment of all his most cherished expectations. And it was not enough that this boy, who was not his, by keeping before his eyes the perfect realization of all that he had desired in his own son, seemed always to mock him. But he must needs come between him and that son, such as he was, and steal the affections that were his by every right, and add to the wealth of love lavished on him by his own kinsfolk. Truly, to him that hath shall be given, and from him that hath not shall be taken away, even that which he hath. It was by a law as natural as that of gravitation that the ewe lamb was added to the flocks and herds of the rich man, and the wonder is that Nathan should have seen anything odd in the arrangement. Still, this is a hard saying, and a view of matters that has seemed unjust to generations of men, from the prophet down to William Ebbesley, who certainly needed and would have appreciated a little affection far more than the fortunate Carol. In fact, he was jealous, and strange as it may seem that a father should be jealous of his son's friends, it is by no means so rare a thing as might be supposed. No parent can help a certain humiliation and annoyance at the thought of a child's undoubted preference of another to himself. Many people under these circumstances make the grievous mistake of trying to separate their sons from the objects of their jealousy, but in no case is this treatment successful. Some lads turn sulky under it and nurse bitter feelings in secret, while others break out into open defiance and rebellion when all sorts of trouble ensue. Of course, the parents do not admit for a moment that it is jealousy that prompts their course. There are always admirable reasons why the objectionable person is not a good friend for their offspring. Mr. Ebbesley would probably have repudiated with scorn the idea of his being jealous of Tim's affection for Carol Darley, but it galled and irritated him nonetheless, until he had come to entertain such a hearty dislike of his young neighbor as he would have been slow to acknowledge even to himself. He did not consider how little pains he had taken to secure the gift which he grudged to another. In his own way, he loved his son strongly, but not having found him such as he had hoped, he could not give him that approving affection which alone conveys the idea of love to a child's mind. All the same, it did not strike him as anything less than reasonable to expect that the boy should be intuitively aware of this hidden love of his, and respond to it as warmly as though it were expressed. He knew he had the feeling, but did not reflect that he never showed it. 
and though Tim was as far from guessing his father's real sentiments with regard to his friend as he was from divining his love for himself, he felt instinctively, though dimly, that the subject of Carol was not a welcome one to Mr. Ebbesley, and that he would therefore do well, without actually disguising the fact of his intimacy with him, to see him quietly and talk of him as little as possible. And this was not a difficult course to pursue, as Mr. Ebbesley rarely encouraged much conversation from him on any subject, and still more rarely made any inquiries as to where, how, or with whom he spent his time when they were apart. But on this particular afternoon he seemed, as I have said, so kind, and Tim was feeling so warmly towards him, and everything was working so well towards the gratification of his wish to be off to the court in time for the promised walk, that he said in lightness of heart, I'm glad you had no business in Grandhurst, father. Why so? asked his father, wondering in his own mind if he were going to suggest their doing anything together, and determined beforehand to accede to any such proposition, even though he had to put off looking over the law papers he had brought down with him till the next day. Well, you see, I was to have gone a walk with Carol Darley yesterday, but there were people calling at the court, and he had to go back with them so we couldn't have our walk. And he said we might go this afternoon, but I wasn't sure if I should be back in time. If you'd had to stay in Grandhurst, it would have made it too late. So we left it open. It was to depend on that. That's why I wanted to know if you were coming straight home. I'm awfully glad. It was one of Mr. Ebbesley's idiosyncrasies that he always paused before answering anyone just long enough to make his interlocutor feel awkwardly uncertain whether he had heard or not so that Tim, who was accustomed to his ways, was not for a moment or two surprised at his silence. When he did speak, it was to say slowly, and in a voice from which all traces, either of affection or resentment, were equally removed, oh, You say you were at Darley Court yesterday? Am I to understand you wish to go there again today? Tim looked up quickly and was startled at the hard expression on his father's face. Yes, he stammered. I thought I meant... I think you will be in the way, Mr. Ebbesley continued in the same measured tones. Mr. and Mrs. Darley cannot want you perpetually about the house. But most likely I should not see any of them, Tim protested eagerly. I am only going to see Carol. It was quite by accident that he happened to be in the drawing room yesterday when I went. I should think he, too, could exist without seeing you every day, said his father sharply, and then, relapsing into stateliness, he added, I disapprove of such violent intimacies, especially with people with whom I am not intimate myself. It flashed across Tim that if his intimacies were to be regulated by his father's, their number would indeed be limited. But he swallowed this repartee and made one despairing effort. But he asked me to come, and I said I would. I will not go again if you don't like me to. I desire, said Mr. Ebbesley, in a way that put an end to all further discussion of the subject, that you will not go to the court this afternoon. That is enough. No word of why he wanted him to stay at the manor house, of regret that he should wish to leave him on the first afternoon that they were together after so long a separation. He was too proud to show his own child how much he needed his affection. Nothing could be farther from Tim's imagination than that his father should wish to keep him near himself, or have any desire for his company. Probably one indication of a human motive, even a jealous or selfish one, that had its root in love, would have brought them closer together than anything had ever done yet. 
but it was foreign to William Ebbesley's nature to make such a sign. He believed himself to be actuated by entirely impersonal considerations, or at least he wished to believe so, and was determined that his son should, whether he did or not. So Tim's flutterings of love and joy, born of a summer's morning, were chilled back upon his heart, and he sat in silence for the rest of the drive, sore and resentful, and escaped, as soon as they reached home, to cry in his own room alone with Bess. Carol, concluding that he had not got back in time, visited the old mill and the new cart road by himself, whistling as he went. This was Mr. Ebbesley's first act of open hostility to the friendship between the lads, and it was the beginning of much pain and heart-burning to Tim, serving to widen the distance between him and his father considerably. End of chapter 9 Recording by Larry Kaplan